This is Mishmash, a weekly conversation where we try to unjumble an important and sometimes under-the-radar statewide story that affects you. Michigan politics Twitter was ablaze recently (laughs) with news about campaign finance reports. But if you're not all consumed by that world of Michigan politics, it's possible that those stories got by you, which is actually kind of a big deal because... Although we often see the eyes sort of glaze over as soon as we start talking about donations and dollar figures and whatnot, this is, quote, the most politically consequential campaign finance deadline in Michigan in a while. That is the direct quote that caught my eye, and I immediately forwarded it on to Jake for us to talk about it today. (laughs) And it came from Craig Mauger, who covers state government and politics for the Detroit News. And he's pretty much always been one of our go-to people to talk about why campaign finance matters to you and to all of us. And he's here with us now. Craig, welcome to Mishmash. Thank you for having me today. So, Craig, uh, what were one or two of the biggest stories that you think kind of came out of the campaign finance filings right before that deadline on October 25th? One of the biggest stories was definitely Governor Gretchen Whitmer's campaign finance haul. She raised over $3 million over the last three months, which is a huge amount of money. And we found out that she continues to raise money over the state's campaign contribution limits, citing a ruling from the 1980s about candidates who are facing recall efforts and their ability to raise unlimited amounts of money. The other major storyline was just the Republican gubernatorial primary. James Craig raised a lot of money. Not as much as, you know, some hoped he would, but he he raised a lot. And we saw what the other candidates were raising in the race. Garrett Saldano posted a pretty good number. Tudor Dixon was further behind. As I quoted you in the intro, you said that this was the most politically consequential campaign finance deadline in Michigan in a while. Explain why that is. The reason that is, is because we have a crop of a bunch of candidates on the Republican side running for governor, running for attorney general, running for secretary of state. They're all stating their claim that they want to be the GOP nominee. We don't know how viable a lot of their campaigns are. This campaign finance filing on Monday provides a lot of insight into where these candidates are, who's supporting them, how donors view them. Are they able to get a a large grassroots amount of support? It just provides a level of insight into these campaigns that we don't normally get. And really quick, who, in your opinion, are some of the more viable ones coming out of this campaign filing? Yeah, that's that's a great question. In the attorney general race, we saw that Tom Leonard, the former state house speaker, raised over three hundred thousand dollars in not a very long amount of time from where he announced his campaign for attorney general and the fundraising deadline. So he's one of the people that come out of this looking very good for secretary of state. It keeps coming back to Christina Caramo, the Trump-endorsed candidate in the Secretary of State race. She continues just to raise money, gain grassroots support, and it really seems like we're setting ourselves up right now. This could change, but it seems like it's setting up to be a race between Jocelyn Benson, who has just been constantly pushing back on these claims about the election, and someone who's making claims about the elections, which is just going to be a really, really uh, significant race and, and just a really interesting race to to, to watch. And on uh, when it comes to governor, I, I think James Craig is in a league of his own right now when it comes to fundraising. That could change. He's got a lot of big donors. He's got a lot of small donors. Garrett Saldano is raising a decent amount of money. He raised about $500,000. 
James Craig raised $1.4 million, but Saldana was raising a lot of grassroots money. Can he continue to do that? And will some other candidate get in this race? We don't know yet. It's possible, but, but those are some of the things we learned for sure. So as you said, Craig, Governor Whitmer, going back to, to the incumbent here, continues to rake in just a lot of money uh, and a lot of money that she otherwise wouldn't legally be allowed to raise, uh, as you said, because she says she's facing a recall effort. Explain to people uh, a little bit more why that exemption exists and what the governor's explanation is for continuing to raise this extra money. Yeah, we are in the deepest possible weeds of campaign finance law. Uh, <laughs> I'll just throw that out there. We're in the deep weeds. I'll try to guide you out here. That's what we're here for, Craig. That's why you're here. (laughs) In the 1980s, the Secretary of State then, Richard Austin, essentially said, if you're a lawmaker and someone's trying to recall you, the people trying to recall you can raise unlimited amounts of money. Someone could give a million dollars to a committee trying to recall an officeholder. So he said it's only fair, it's only constitutional if we say that those people fight in the recall the lawmaker can raise unlimited amounts of money specifically to combat the active recall. Now, if you look at this situation right now with Governor Whitmer, there have been dozens, about 30 recall petitions filed against her. None of those are coming to fruition. There is no active campaign trying to recall her right now. Uh, Most people look at this, come to that conclusion, but her campaign continues to say that there are recall efforts that are technically still alive. Like there might be a few that are in the court system where it's actually, if you really look down at it, it's the Whitmer campaign itself that is keeping the recalls alive. What happened is a recall was filed. It was approved by the board of state canvassers as to saying, Hey, this language is factual. The language has to be factual and true to do a recall. The board of canvassers said, yes, this language to recall the governor is factual and true. It went and the governor's campaign sued and said, we don't think this language should have been approved. That sent it to the court system where it's still pending. If this wasn't in the court system and the Whitmer campaign just let the language get approved, these people doing it, they had no ability to actually carry out the recall. So it would be dead by now. But because it's stuck in the court system, the Whitmer campaign is essentially saying it's still alive. So it's just I'm sorry I'm getting fired up about it. but It's a very, very wild situation that people will be talking about probably for decades. The way I'm talking about the 1980s rulings, there'll probably be some like fool reporter like me 30 years from now just being like, this is what happened in in the 2020s. Stay fired up, Craig. I mean, you know, it's it's, it's contagious. People will care about it. That's why we have you on. So this has been really interesting, though it's probably worth noting that even without these contributions, you know, above and beyond the normal giving limits, Whitmer would still be massively outraising yes. anyone in the Republican field and even gubernatorial incumbents in the past. So let's talk about what else we learned about the governor's race from those campaign finance filings. I mean, Governor Whitmer is in a great position. Uh, when it comes to fundraising right now, even if you take out the money, like you said, that came in over the limit. So that's about $4 million. She has $12.6 million in the bank. You take out the four, that's still $8 million right now sitting in the bank that she can use uh, next year for her reelection bid. She'll probably raise more money over the next two months before the end of the year. She might be at 10 million by then. Keep in mind, Rick Snyder, the year before his reelection, the end of 2013, 
he had $5 million in the bank. So she will very likely be at more than double what Rick Snyder had. Even, you know, if you subtract the donations over the limit that she is in a great position. Rick Snyder faced one democratic candidate who didn't have to survive a primary and was able to fundraise a lot of money. Mark Schauer, Gretchen Whitmer is going to face someone that survives a very contested primary is going to have to spend a lot of their money on that primary. She's going to have a huge financial advantage. That's not everything in a race, but that is a very good thing for her campaign. Craig, I'm curious what you think, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask Craig to comment on Craig here. Um, <laughs> James Craig, <laughs> you know, James Craig. Yes, yes, he's the one running for governor of the two of you. But uh, but but I, you know, his haul, as you said, of about 1.4 million dollars uh, in that first quarterly report of his campaign. Um, you know, in in some ways, you know, he is by far leading the Republican field. Uh, and as you said, he's sort of in a league of his own there. It seems like a lot of members of the establishment are really coalescing around that campaign. Um, but at the same time, uh, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about, you know, putting this into context. For one thing, like you said, he's doing better than his primary candidates. He is way, way behind Governor Whitmer in ter- if you're going to compare those two. And like you said, he's got a primary to get through. Um do you th- how do you think I know that the campaign has tried to make the best light of that as saying, like, look, he's he's a first time political uh, candidate. He's never done this before. Um, but what what are your what's your sense of putting this into sort of context of whether one point four million dollars is uh, encouraging for people behind the scenes who support James Craig or uh, if there's a lot of improvement there to to, um, you know, to be had? Yeah, I'd say it's a very talking to the political political consultants that watch these numbers, talking to his campaign, talking to other campaigns. One point four million dollars is a good number for him. It's good. It's not great. And it doesn't close the door on someone coming forward to be the alternative to him. There are three X factors here as I think about this as I cover this race. The first X factor is does Donald Trump endorse one of the other gubernatorial Mm. candidates on the Republican side? If Donald Trump endorses, let's say, Tudor Dixon, she all of a sudden will jet forward in this primary race in the way we all perceive it, and she could become the alternative to James Craig. Right now, it's James Craig and a bunch of other people. Mm -hmm. If it becomes James Craig versus Tudor Dixon, that could be a problem for James Craig. Another X factor what is going to happen with Kevin Rinke? Yeah. <laughs> he's this yeah. businessman from Metro Detroit. He's got multiple millions of dollars. He says he's willing to put $10 million into his potential campaign. If he gets in this race, it reshapes the race. The third X factor is, I, I, I keep thinking about this too, the redistricting lines. This commission is redrawing all of our district lines. When they're done reshuffling all of this, is there some member of Michigan's Republican U.S. House delegation who's left without a seat, who sticks his finger in the wind and says, James Craig is not putting this race away. I don't have a U.S. House seat to run for anymore. And 2022 is starting to look like a really good year for Republicans. Why wouldn't I run for governor right now? Those are three possibilities. That last one, I think, is becoming more. It's not very likely, but it's becoming more likely with all the trends that we're seeing right now. Hmm, Interesting. What do you think were some of the biggest disappointments for candidates running for office? You know, that's 
I think the Tudor Dixon fundraising number was one of the potential disappointments here. I mean, she raised about, I think it was about $200,000, which is much less than Saldano, Garrett Saldano, much less than James Craig. But her campaign is still optimistic that she has momentum going, that she's in a position to win, and that ultimately when things get closer to the primary, she's going to be there at the end. I mean, I think that was a number that was kind of like, you know, that's 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 a disappointing number in some ways. We didn't know where she was going to be. Another thing is, if you're the Democrats right now, hoping to go for the legislature, uh, hoping to win the legislature, get control of it. You look at your numbers. You don't have a lot of candidates filed. You're being outraised by the Republicans. You're not in the position you probably want to be in either right now. So those would be two that I would flag. You know, uh, I spent a little bit of time up north uh, over the summer. And when I was there, I saw uh, a lot of Ryan Kelly signs all over Mm -hmm. northern Michigan. And I think that you could probably say that, uh, you know, in terms of this campaign finance uh, filing, um, it's not looking so great for Ryan Kelly. (laughs) No, Ryan Kelly is obviously his campaign is not going to be one that is going to be successful based on its fundraising. Like he's trying to run this totally outsider grassroots thing. He does not have the kind of financial support, though, that Garrett Saldano has, who is in that same lane. These Mm -hmm. two guys are kind of in the same lane. And Saldano's just outperforming him in a number of the metrics. The thing with Kelly is, is he going to be able to gather the signatures he needs to actually be on the ballot? If you're Garrett Saldano, you're probably sitting there hoping. I hope he doesn't get on the ballot because he's going to cut into people who might vote for me. So that that's that's a great observation. Another one, Michael Brown, this Michigan State Police commander who's running for governor. He's been very active on social media. He's gotten a ton of media coverage. I, he's gotten more media coverage than Ryan Kelly's gotten. He's gotten hmm. more media coverage than some of these other candidates who are raising a lot more money than he is. Michael Brown raised $14,000. That is not very much money for someone running for the state house. And he's running for governor. And at the mm-hmm. same time, the, he's getting a lot of media coverage. It's just a fascinating <laughs> thing. Well, it might be an interesting uh, sort of case study in how far earned media gets a, a campaign, I suppose. But <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, there's something or how you present yourself and what that means for how the media perceives you. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so before we jump off to another uh, subject, I, I'm curious, is there anything else uh, that, that really jumped at, out at you in terms of campaign finance this this past week? Um, anything that uh, we haven't covered so far that, that you think people should know about? Yeah, I think we're one thing I would flag for people to watch is there's going to be a petition effort to try to insert all of these new voter ID requirements in Michigan, different election law changes that the Republicans are pushing based on a lot of the criticism over the 2020 election, which was found to be you know, a valid election. The result of it was upheld. There's this petition drive coming. The opponents of this petition drive have already collected more than $2 million to fight it. We don't know how much the group pushing the petition drive has raised so far because they haven't had to file yet. They're going to file in the coming weeks. But we could see a very, very expensive campaign on the ground fighting over these petition signatures. And if you were an election lawyer in Michigan, you're probably going to be making lots of money battling every detail of this. 
For those listening at home, by the way, if you're wondering where Shana went, uh, Shana, <laughs> Shana is a, we're, we're all three of us are parents here, and Shana had to had to duck out to to handle a baby situation. So that's what's going on. But Craig, I, I don't think we could talk to you without talking about something sort of unexpected, I guess, that happened this week. Um, you know, you, you covered a lot this week, the Michigan Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission. After a really robust and sometimes raucous public comment period about the commission's draft maps, the commission had what could really only be described, I think, as a bizarre meeting. Uh, it, it started with a, with an apparent threat of violence against commissioners, which delayed the meeting starting in the first place. And then the commission went into a closed session, which we should note, the constitutional amendment that Michigan voters passed in 2018 creating this commission states pretty clearly that any business that the commission does must happen in the open. Uh, I'm curious, for one thing, talk about your experience. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you were the only person in the public in the room that the public was there, and then you got kicked out. Is that right? This is the most, like, I, I was so, ex- you know, as this was happening to me, I was like, I hope we talk about this on the Mitch podcast. Yes, couldn't, couldn't ignore it. <laughs> So it's so there was at the start of the meeting, I, I was not at the meeting when things were starting normally. And they said, you know, we saw on social media, the traffic that there was some type of threat against the commission that was delaying the start of the meeting in Mich- at, in East Lansing at Michigan State. My office is in Lansing. So I said, I need to get over there and see what's going on. Like, are people in mm. danger? We don't know what's going on. So I, I drove over there and the commission was basically locked down in a room on the third floor of the Michigan State University Student Union, everyone else in the building was going about their normal business. The redistricting commission is in this lockdown room, not having the meeting, not coming out for a while. And you would have students just walking by the room. And like, Hmm. it was just bizarre because it's like, there's a death threat. And supposedly the police are sweeping the building, but there are thousands of students in the building just walking around like nothing's happening. And then eventually they kind of resolved this issue with the threat. And the police said, this is not a serious threat. And the meeting continued. So at this point, there's no public at this meeting except me and Sergio, who is one of the reporters at Bridge, who sure. is a very good reporter. We're both there. When the meeting starts, the spokesperson for the commission says to Sergio and I, he says, you have a choice. You either come into the meeting and you have to stay for the whole meeting. Oh, no. Which is supposed to go till 8 p.m. Uh-huh. We're going to lock you in. Or you don't come into the meeting and you sit out here and watch it. Oh my gosh. Sergio said, I'm going to sit out here and watch it. And I said, I I was like, I guess I'm going to go in. Cause I was like, they're not going to keep me in this room. Like if I get up in three hours and say, I got to leave, they're not going to force me to stay. Like they cannot legally force me to stay in this room. Wow. So I went in (laughs) there. So I went in the room and then after a little bit of time of discussion is when they got to this point where they said, we're going to have a closed session. We, they voted and they said, we're going to go in this closed session, which means the public, no one gets to see what they're talking about. Uh, and it's very clear in the Constitution that they cannot do this. It says all of their business has to be conducted in an open meeting. This is what the people of Michigan voted on. It's It could not be clear that they cannot do this. And I stood up when they were trying to close up the meeting and, they, and I said, I'm not going to leave because you don't have the ability to do this. 
And they approached me and their attorney. They said, here's where we're citing as the law. You cannot stay in here. So eventually I was like, all right, I guess I'm leaving. I'm not, you know, they never said we're going to like carry you out of here. They just said, you're leaving. You can't stay here. So I walked out of the meeting and I called my, my bosses and said, this is what's happening. Uh, they're kicking me out of this meeting that I was the only member of the public who was physically present in. And that's kind of what unfolded. It was one of the, it was just a really bizarre, bizarre situation. And, and I think it's important to add some context here for listeners too. Now, being in closed session is not uncommon for public bodies, generally speaking, that, you yeah. know, there are all kinds of, uh, you know, we we have an Open Meetings Act in this in this state that is incredibly important and, and lays this out, but it does allow for certain things. Um, the legislature is something that I noted uh, with this. The legislature has closed door caucus meetings every day that it's in session where they discuss how they're going to vote and what what's at stake and no one can go in those uh, in those uh, meetings, as you and I know, we sat outside of a few of those <laughs> back in our day. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and and uh, but the 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 Citizens Redistricting Commission has a different standard to follow. The U the the state constitution, as us voters approved, said very clearly that all of their business had to be done in 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 the open. And it's it is a sort of an unprecedented standard for a public body, uh, which I think is one of the things that that voters appreciated is this is sort of a, a level of transparency we've never really seen before. Um, but one of the, the one of the things that I think the spokesperson for the commission said that I thought was interesting was we're not doing any business in the closed session. And I'm like, how, like, why would you have a closed session if you're not doing any business? Is there a legalese, uh, you know, uh, definition that I don't understand? I'm not a lawyer, but yeah. uh, why would you meet behind closed doors if you're not doing any business? It didn't make any sense to me. At this moment, from, from the lawyers that I've heard from that are looking at this, there's lots of different groups analyzing this right now to figure out, should we legally challenge what occurred yesterday? And they're all looking at that point that you're talking about. Is there something somewhere in the law that defines what business is? Or is there some argument here that will be successful from the redistricting commission that this somehow wasn't business? Keep in mind, it says all business. Mm -hmm. There's nothing in the constitutional language that details what that is or if voters are supposed to understand that when we say all business, wink, wink, we actually just mean part of the business. Like there's nothing in there. That, that points to what Edward Woods, the spokesperson for the commission, has argued. I will also flag, Woods has made that argument. I have not heard that argument from the commission's attorney. Mm-hmm. The commission's attorney has been saying this thing about this is attorney-client privilege and we have to protect this. This is protected. So she's kind of made a different argument than Edward Woods has made, um, who I, I don't think he's an attorney. I don't have, I don't know. But uh, uh, the, the, it's a really great, it's just a, what a situation that we are in uh, with this. But it's one of those things, like you talk about, there, there's a moment with all this stuff where the precedent set and the redistricting commission is new. And we're at that moment right now where the precedent is being set going forward for the next 100 years. Is this commission going to be able to do part of its agenda behind closed doors or is it all going to have to happen out in the open? It's going to be decided right now. It's going to be decided in what happens over the next few days. It will have an impact going forward. 
Just really quick, I know we've been talking for a while, but um, you know we've got local elections coming up, and I know that you are focused on state government. There are no state elections, mm-hmm. no federal elections. It's all about local local elections. But I, I'm wondering, just from your perspective, um, you know, from a very broad sense, the the importance of of these local elections and why people should really consider finding out what's on their ballot finding out what's going on in their community and and uh, are participating because the the voter participation numbers are abysmal for off year yeah. elections. Um, you know, what should people keep in mind from your perspective as someone who really uh, is is passionate about uh, civic engagement? The, these are the races, as you know, that most affect your life. I mean, that's just putting it. I cover state governments for a living. And I will even say those local races, they're the ones that affect your life most closely. I mean, look at state government right now. We got a Republican legislature, a Democratic governor. There's not a whole heck of a lot getting done on a daily basis Mm -hmm. here. A lot of the major bills are getting vetoed. They did arrange a budget. I'll give them credit for that. Uh, But the most stuff gets done at the local level. That's where stuff ultimately gets done. And this is your chance to decide who those people are. Do you like the way your election was administered? Do you not like the way your election was administered? Do you get a vote for your municipal clerk in some places? Mm-hmm. Do you like what's happening with the road that you live on? Or do you not like what's happening with the road that you live on? Do you like what's happening with the police in your city? Or do you not like what's happening with the police in your city? The people who affect all that mostly are these people that you're going to be voting on next week, or maybe already voted on if you voted absentee. It's a, these are big elections. And a lot of these people will probably go on to serve in these offices that most people consider to be bigger uh, down the road. And if you want to see what's on your ballot, you can always go to the Michigan Secretary of State's website, michigan.gov slash vote. You can find your what's on your ballot and everything that you need to know to, to actually cast a ballot uh, in, in this week's elections. And uh, it's just extremely important. Cannot stress that enough. And I also really want to thank Craig Mauger, who covers state government and politics for the Detroit News. Craig, always great to have you here on Mishmash. I love it. I, I, I'm a dedicated listener. Thank you for having me.